welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today, guys, today I am talking to a bona fide hip hop legend and one of the longest serving DJs in this country. As an integral member of Prophets of the City, a group who are widely credited as having South Africa's first rap release, he built a thriving career over the years as a hip hop DJ and turntablist and radio and TV presenter, while also working closely with communities to develop youth programs for educational upliftment. I am, of course, talking about Dion Daniels, better known to all of us as DJ Ready D. Sir, welcome to the show. How are you doing? DJ J. I'm very well. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It is only a pleasure. You know, I've been doing this podcast for nine seasons now, and it's like clockwork for me. I've settled into a bit of a groove, you know, but today, sure, you have me firing on all cylinders today. What do I ask you? Where do I start? <laughs> but having been in the music industry for like just short of four decades with with an incredible career, what's the number one thing that has you getting up and choosing music every morning? Because this business, it ain't easy. Yeah, the music industry in South Africa, especially, it's a, it's a very challenging environment to be in and from a career standpoint as well. Um, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what makes me stand up in the morning, though. And I think a lot of it's got to do with curiosity, especially from a production and a DJing standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. And... I'm always intrigued, you know, by what you can accomplish out of, if you want to call it, call it a blank canvas, really. And when I approach music production and DJing, you know, it's kind of like a mixture of sounds and trying to experiment and to see where certain things will actually go. And through that, you know, the experimentation happens and then I just, wish, you know, that I'm actually going to come out okay on the other end. And it just keeps one just going day in and day out. And the fact that you never, ever stop learning, for me, that's also um, quite interesting. A hundred percent. You never stop learning. And we'll get back to your incredible career in a second. But the Cape Town that I grew up in, right, and the Cape Town that you grew up in are two completely different worlds uh, within their space in time. What stands out in your mind when you think back to growing up in District 6? When I think about District 6, I think about um, joy. I think about family. I think about community. I think about the sounds. I can still hear, you know, I can still, I can still hear District 6. I can still smell District 6. I still feel the vibrancy of District 6 as well. And in fact, this morning I was contemplating quite but you know, thinking about District 6 and thinking about really? the home that I lived in. And I was like, maybe I should get an artist that can recreate the house that I lived in. Because there's so many details that I do remember about that home. And I was thinking, I think I'm, I'll have to spend some time with somebody that could hopefully put pen to paper and interpret, you know, and hopefully create this home that I lived in. So that's my thoughts of District 6. So I experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when I say the ugly, as a kid, I've seen, you know, the houses come down. I've mm -hmm. seen District 6 being turned to dust right before my eyes. And it was the same with our home. 
when we moved out the very next day, the bulldozers came in and turned the house to rubble. So the bulldozers were on standby practically, just sure. waiting for us to get out. Yeah. Were you old enough to understand what was actually happening as all of this chaos was unfolding around you at the time? Or now looking back on it, were you like, sure, that was actually quite a tense, horrible moment? I was too young to understand what was going on. So my first encounters with um, the riots and with the uprising was in primary school, and I remember in 1976. Members of the riot squad then opened fire with shotguns and rubber bullets. From the townships to the city centers, this time Cape Town, where the ANC's program of mass action triggered still more confrontation with the police. My sister came storming into my classroom, grabbed me by the hand, and tried to get me out of school as quickly as she could. And I couldn't understand why all these cops were on the school, all these police vans, predominantly white policemen. Um, I remember the, the blue skies turning into smoke and our eyes were tearing and we were crying and screaming, not understanding what was going on because I didn't grow up in a political home. I didn't grow up, you know, in, mm. in, in, in a type of family where there was any talk about what was going on, you know, with regards to politics and all these things. So I didn't quite understand it. So in that year, I remember running home. My sister took a handkerchief, um, managed to wet it in, in the school toilet. We attended Sonnebloom Primary, both of, both of us. And she put that... Um, she put that handkerchief over my face, you know, um, just to help me breathe better and just sure. uh, and to try and alleviate my skin from burning. So that was the first time I didn't quite understand it, though. And the other thing that I did encounter as a kid, and these are just some of the moments and the images that stand out. I remember my father always feeling subdued around white people, specifically white policemen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you, you grow up with this, with this image, you grow up with this energy and you grow up with this fear, you know, for, for, for white people. So that's, um, you know, some of the memories and some of the emotional scars and experiences that I had to deal with as, as a young kid growing up then. And being forcibly removed and then arriving in a new place where you now have to live, seeing your new house and neighborhood for the first time. When you're a kid, what are the sorts of thoughts that run through your mind? When we moved out of District 6, all our furniture was packed on the back of my uncle's tipper truck. So this young energetic boy that used to play in the streets and under the streets though, you know, we spent a lot of time... <laughs> playing under the streets in District 6, so I know what the tunnels look like that will take you all the way down into the city centre. Because as Incredible. District 6 fell, you know, there was a lot of um, manholes that we used to climb into and just explore the place. We used to run up to um, Table Mountain as well, you know, and play in the mountain, play around the quarry areas. So we were quite adventurous when a lot of the families moved out. We were the kids that used to jump onto the... Um, the vacant houses, the roofs, and explore and all these things. So getting on the back of that tipper truck and taking this 30-kilometer um, journey to Lentegio Mitchell's Plain, 
first came across as an adventure. When I first saw the house in Mitchell's Plain, I was pretty blown away. Number one, the size. It was a small little home. Because my grandfather owned two homes in District mm-hmm. 6, both next to each other. And they were converted into one home. So we had six rooms, two backyards. So it was a pretty big home. Sure. The only thing that really made me happy in Mitchell's Plain was the fact that we had hot and cold water and we had a, a bath in the bathroom. In District 6, we had to warm the water over the fire or in a kettle. And we used to wash in these metal basins. And as a little kid, I had a bucket I used to stand in and my mom used to wash me in this bucket. So looking at the bath in Mitchell's Plain, it was kind of like a luxury item and that excited me. But I would say um, that sense of euphoria came to an end very, very quickly years <laughs> later. The game changed when my sister and I had to learn how to travel by train from Mitchell's Plain to Woodstock and then walk to our school. While we were living in District 6, getting to school was like a three-minute, maximum five-minute walk. Mm. So now we had to learn to take this train with a whole lot of strangers in a very, very foreign setting. And for me, that was a little bit shocking, though. My mom had to leave home at four in the morning. She had to walk one and a half kilometers from um, our home in Mitchell's Plain to Mitchell's Plain Town Center to go and get a bus over there. So I didn't see much of my mom for many, many years, though. You know, so practically my sister and I, we were growing up ourselves. We only saw mom when she got home at night. She made the food and then she had to get into bed so she could be up at half past three to take a walk to the town center at four in the morning. So the enthusiasm of the experience was very short-lived once you were faced with the actual reality of this is now my day-to-day existence. Absolutely. And also it's typical for a, for a young boy growing up on the Cape Flats, you know, and, and, and this is just my personal philosophy. And I believe all of this was done by design. You know, the way we grew up, everything that was set up, but the previous apartheid government from a social and political standpoint was designed for young boys to self-destruct and to die yeah. or to end up in prison yeah. at the early age. So I ended up, you know, with the wrong friends, being exposed to gangsterism. Although I wasn't an active gang banger per se, most of my friends were gang bangers and I got caught up, you know, in gangster stuff without having to claim being a gang member. I've done things and I've seen things um, that I don't think any young boy my age should have seen. And my mom had no control over that because she had to get to work, you know, at the early hours of the morning. So she wasn't there to see me get into the mischief that I did and hanging out with the friends that I did at the time. Yeah, so you have this whole generation that are basically unsupervised Absolutely. So they get into up to all kinds of nonsense. But when I interviewed 
youngster CPT last season, we started talking about you and he started fangirling so hard. <laughs> and he <Wow>. speaks <laughs> so incredibly fondly of you as as a hero. I think the word that he used was the oracle of Cape Town hip hop. <laughs> and wow. you know, someone who was <laughs> responsible for exposing him not only not only to hip hop music, but to hip hop culture. But when you were growing up, hip hop wasn't a thing at all here in South Africa. Who first introduced you to the genre or how were you exposed to it? Wow. You're actually asking such a very important question because this was also partly what I was thinking about today as well. Mm. My exposure to hip hop, how it, um, how it was introduced to me. And I was actually thinking about this in lyric form and I'm contemplating if I should write a verse or do a song explaining, you know, how I was exposed to hip hop. So to cut a long story short, around about 79, um, late 79, 1980, my father fell ill. My sister used to live with my aunt in, she's four years older than me though. She used to live with my aunt in Lansdowne. She then moved back to District 6, with my father being in hospital. Um, she had a lot of friends that used to hang out, um, you know, at our home. And some of these friends were a group of young guys that lived in the notorious Gimpy Street in Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And this one Saturday, they came to visit in District 6, and they rolled up in this red and white 63 Chevy Impala. I remember that clearly because, you, yeah, I'm telling you, you could hear that car come on from a mile away. So I knew the sound of the car already. I ran out. I saw that car pull up. The first thing they did was open up the boot of that massive, massive car that looked like a ship at the time. And out of the boot, they pulled out this portable turntable with this big battery pack. And they had a whole bunch of records with them. They came inside the house and we were listening to records. And in that batch of records, there was Rapper's Delight by the Shugill Gang. And in that same batch of records, there was Curtis Blows the Breaks. Yeah. I didn't know that this was hip hop music. I didn't know where this was actually going to lead to. The thing that I could relate to was Rapper's Delight because I grew up with disco music being played, you know, in our house. So I recognized that bass line, you know, by the, by the disco band Chic. And that's the same bass line that Rapper's Delight used. And that, that intrigued me. And then when I heard these guys rapping about cars and basketball and color TVs and swimming pools, that immediately became um, aspirational to me. And thinking about it on a deeper level, we always grew up telling stories and jokes in a rhyme form. So I could relate to the rhyming. Mm. And that really drew me in. Then... 198 um unfortunately my my father passed away shortly after me being exposed to this hip hop music and all these things but dad passed away that was um late 1980 it could have been early 81 
then it was time for us to move and relocate um, to Lentechia Mitchell's Plain. So my exposure to the music was there already. And then in late 81, 80, bordering on 82, a classmate of mine, they owned this video recorder and he used to record these music videos on television. And one of the videos that he recorded from TV back then was this song by Malcolm McLaren called Buffalo Gals. And in this video, yeah, in this video, they had these interesting looking characters with painted faces and they had these big hats and they called themselves hobos wearing this oversized clothing. And there was these kids doing all these strange acrobatic bordering on martial arts style movements. And then there was this DJ sitting and scratching these records. And it just made me lose my mind completely. And to see people spray on the walls, I was like, what the heck is happening here? (laughs) I've never seen anything like this in my life. But immediately I could relate because the only graffiti I grew up with was like gangster graffiti, you know, sprayed Mm. up all over the walls of District 6 and in the broken houses and wherever these gangs could find spaces um, to tag up or to practically... um, you know, just to to, um, to put their stamp on the walls and declare this is their territories and all these things. That's the only thing I knew. But to see something compl- completely new and fresh, that blew my mind and that drew me in. So I think that was my first official experience to all the elements of the culture outside of the musical side. That was Rapper's Delight and The Breaks by Curtis Blow. Yeah, I mean, seeing someone scratching a turntable for the first time or seeing someone spinning on their head for the first time, I can imagine that as a kid, you know, that <laughs> that must spark a sort of desire in you to be like, I need to find out what these people are doing. <laughs> a- absolutely. We, we grew up with Kung Fu movies, you know, all these martial arts movies. So you see these guys flying through trees and jumping off buildings <laughs> and doing all these crazy things. And, and Bruce Lee was a hero. And I used to, you know, imitate and emulate all these movements. And in my head, it was a cool form of martial arts and gymnastics being done to this really interesting sound. So we started breaking and imitating everything we've seen in the videos for about two years. And two years down the line, when all of this started to hit mainstream media, we then um, we then discovered that this whole thing is called hip hop, and it's a part of a culture that was born in the South Bronx in the USA. Just the dogs are barking outside. I'm not sure if you're picking up the dogs. I, I am picking up the dogs. And since you mentioned the dogs, I have to ask: What breed are they, and what are their names? John warned you that I was going <laughs> to ask. <laughs> uh, I need to know. I have one. I have one dog. I have one dog left. Unfortunately, our, our, our eldest one passed in, in in lockdown. She was a Rottweiler. I also had a Yorkie, and now I have Milo, and he's a pit bull. Milo sounds like a like a big dog. You know, he's got a big dog bark. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a big. He's a big baby. He loves flexing. <laughs> he must show his muscles yeah. to everybody that walks past the gate. And he's actually running around with a big jersey on because he's a very cold dog. And we bought him a big jersey with a collar on. So he's bowling uh, outside, flexing, yeah, he's, showing he's, everybody. 
<laughs> that's exactly what he's doing. He's like, ruff, ruff, look at my cool jersey that my father bought me. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's what he's doing. <laughs> but you mentioned the Bronx, and I, I want to pick it up there because often when I have hip-hop artists on the show, we talk about Cape Town hip-hop culture versus Joburg hip-hop culture, right? But I'm interested in any parallels that you saw between Cape Town hip-hop culture in the mid-'80s and the culture that was brewing and unfolding in the Bronx in New York. I think we had a lot of parallels now that I think about it, you know, and also becoming a little bit more politically aware and conscious and learning more about what was going on. So you see the chaos, the devastation, you see the poverty. That's one of the parallels, number one. Um, the introduction um, and the growth of gang violence and drugs and weapons into our community, that's another, I would say, that's another common factor as well. The music that we were exposed to locally and the music that the kids in New York were exposed to, I think it's similar. The only other thing that I don't think they were exposed to was um, the diverse African sounds and the local mm. sounds and the, and the traditional sounds that, that I grew up with, such as the Guma music, you know, the Christmas mm -hmm. and the Cape Malay choirs, that type of sound, and just some of the local music of that era as well. Other than that, I grew up with funk, soul, jazz, reggae music, blues music, you name it. And all of this music had an impact on hip-hop music and the culture in some form or fashion. So I would say that's kind of where we'll draw the, 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 the similarities and the parallels, absolutely. Mm. And I think in the U.S., of course, with um, developing and discovering and inventing all these different maneuvers and techniques within each element of the culture, of course, they were way ahead of us in, in that regard and that respect. And I think also the fact that we were always speaking in a rhythmic way and always rhyming growing up, I think that is a, 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 another um, similarity right there. You know, every now and again, I throw in a tech question for the music nerds. And I mean, you know, if anybody's seen the evolution of music technology, it's you. And I read that because of all the economic sanctions against South Africa because of apartheid, Roland was the only brand available in the country. So I want to know, what did your first, your very first setup look like? <laughs> My very first DJ setup was a Lenko. L75 turntable. It's one of those old school turntables that used to come in this wooden casing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't designed for scratching whatsoever. And my mom couldn't afford to buy me DJ equipment. So that was a deck that um, a friend of mine donated to me because he realized that I was super passionate about this scratching thing. And then my Mixer slash amp was an old broken radio with no crossfader or faders on it. And I used to use the rotary um, knob, the volume knob, to practice my scratching. So that was my first official setup. And then I worked at the Cape City Council at the time. Um, I cleaned toilets. I worked at Weinberg Swimming Pool, cleaning the swimming pool, cleaning the garden and doing those types of menial jobs. And shortly after that, I got another job at the Cape City Council, and I used to work 
in the maintenance department, in the woodwork department, and I used to pick up all the offcuts from the floor. And I used to make my own slip mats, you know, from the felt offcuts, and I made my yeah. own record cleaning um, little bits and pieces from those offcuts as well. So that was officially my first, if you want to call it my first DJ set. And I used to play parties with that as well, you know, in the neighborhood. What? Um, yeah, absolutely. I used to play parties as a kid with that. And for a second deck, I had to borrow another deck from friends, you know, establish um, mobile DJs in the area. And then moving on from there, I would say kind of in the, in, in the beginning days of Prophets of the City, we going late 1990, um, I was exposed to Roland Gear. So my first official production setup was the Roland S50. It was a workstation keyboard with a built-in sampler. And I think I only had eight seconds of sampling time. That is, that is amazing. I knew that that answer was <laughs> going to be good. I knew it was going to be good. But the fact that you like made your first setup with the offcuts that you were collecting from where you worked and where you were cleaning, I think that that is incredible so if you're listening to this podcast and you're crying to your mother because you want money <laughs> you got to be resourceful d was resourceful you can be resourceful too okay yeah i actually actually have to just throw in there though you know this wooden turntable in the box i won two south african championships practicing on those turntables you see, now you're just strengthening my case. So <laughs> if you can win, if you can win two championships with that, uh, people people can yeah they can stop crying because they can't get the new, <laughs> the new model of X. But you know, in in terms of technology um, rapidly developing, you know, these days we have we have millions of songs literally at our fingertips, right? But I want to go back. And I want you to tell me about the 80s, right? Who was your music plug? Like, who was hooking you up with the latest music? How how are you and the guys on the Cape Flats? Like, how are you sharing music between each other? Yeah, a lot of the music um, used to come in via cassettes from a lot of um, uh, people and friends of ours who had families that went into exile. So a lot of the music came via post. Um, myself and my DJ partner at the time, DJ Rosano, um, we saved a lot of our money and we managed to buy certain records at a few record stores back then. Then we had a DJ slash breaker b-boy in our crew. He was a white guy called DJ Aski. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be conscripted at the time and he left South Africa. So I'm taking you back to 1985 right now. He left South Africa, went back to the UK, and he used to send me a lot of music through, through the post as well. So Public Enemy, Allo Cool J, Run DMC, like all the songs that, that, that broke in the US and in the UK at the time, I received all that music. And luckily and thankfully, you know, we, we used to get a lot of the music before anyone else did. And when we had all these breaking battles all over Mitchell's Plain and in Cape Town in the city center, this is where crews used to exchange mixtapes as well. The so guys would then go home, record the cassettes, make um, duplicates of it, and then start distributing it. And that's how the music used to get out to, to, to many 
of the crews and many people within the culture at the time. We also ended up in this club in 1984-85 and in the club we had a tape recorder as well so we would record our sets as well and immediately after the gig you know you could hand out these tapes to people attending the club as well so that's mm-hmm. practically how the music spread yeah so it was very grassroots to a certain degree underground as well and it only used to circulate within if you want to call it that group of people or that hip-hop slash punk rock slash reggae community that's where the the the, the mixtapes would circulate because many people outside of that scene and outside of the culture didn't quite understand what these kids were listening to so it didn't really interest them i want to talk to you about prophets of the city uh and and this is something that i'm probably the most excited to talk to you about because i've interviewed i i, I used to work for a free street press publication called your lmg i wrote for it then i was the editor for a little bit um i've spoken to rosano um in depth and you're one person that i've never i've always wanted to interview and talk about it but i never have and i just feel like with what you were doing with the our world album you know that basically cemented cape town as the birthplace of sa hip hop and you know also made history as the first ever non english hip hop material released you know looking at songs like dala flats which was afrikaans hip hop and and just just so iconic what was it like to have spearheaded pretty much an entire movement in a country when you look back on it like when you're in the thick of things how do you feel when you're doing it when we started working on our world the journey just to get there was a very interesting one as well so let me just backtrack very quickly um i mm-hmm. want to go back to this club i was telling you about the club was called teases and that was not the strip club street. absolutely <laughs> not the strip club <laughs> 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 so Club Teasers was known for its punk rock and reggae scene and I've never been exposed to a club like that and I mean I was too young to go to clubs at the time so friends of us uh, our some mutual splain a group of young ladies introduced us to this club It was Madness anyway I'm going to cut I'm going to try and cut through this as quickly as I possibly can but I think it's very important though mm-hmm. um so we end up getting a 5 minute breakdance slot inside this club so we there every single week so the 5 minutes become 10 minutes the 10 minutes become 20 minutes the owner starts becoming comfortable with us he allows us to get onto the decks myself and Rosano starts playing music you know for all the breakers more breakers start to come and it start growing and growing and growing so we we start playing um hip hop sets or sessions and then you would get a punk rock session and that would cater for all the anarchists and the punk rockers and then there was something for those that were into reggae and eventually hip hop music the house music and the acid house music of that era starts to become very popular and as time progresses we used to have these rap battles and rap showcases and stepping into the cypher there was this one kid that would just spit flames he was just super talented he would outshine everybody every time he gets behind the mic then a friend tells me that this kid's father actually have a recording studio out in Alsace River and i was anxious to meet him officially 
and also to get into that recording studio because now I'm getting flashbacks of Rapper's Delight. Maybe I can become a ghetto superstar. <laughs> finally get my TV and my swimming pool and all the things that those guys were rapping about. Then um, this guy's interested in meeting me because um, he wasn't convinced that we were doing live scratching in the club. Cut a long story short, we end up at my house in Mitchell's Plain. He comes into my room. I start doing the scratch routine swim on my wooden decks. And I'm hustling him to speak to his dad. Please speak to your dad. Speak to your dad. Let's record a song. Let's do an album together. And this kid's name was known as DSA, the Dominator Sound All Around. <laughs> anyway, a couple of weeks later, about a month or two later, he says, look, my dad's interested. Can you give us a demo? I record a demo at home on my little tape deck cassette player thing. The dad is interested in what I was doing, the dad's partner was Lance Stir. And Lance Stir oh, had wow. traveled the world. He was based in the UK for a long time, and he had exposure to Malcolm McLaren and hip-hop and, you know, this alternative sounds already. Lance was immediately interested. Then um, we meet up. I win my South African Championship um, competition. I end up in Joburg. Lance meet me in the club. I end up becoming a resident DJ in the, in the club in Joburg. And Lance is like, guy, we're going to record this album. Anyway, long story short, I end up back in Cape Town City. And we're in this recording studio at Shaheen's house. So Lance and Shaheen, whose name is DSA, his rap name, they are partners in this recording studio. So we're sitting in the studio listening to Shaheen's dad's vinyl. And Shaheen is talking politics. He's talking about Steve Biko. He's talking about Nelson Mandela. And he's like a mind line. Viva my comrade. And I'm like, but are you talking foreign to me? I don't understand this language. <laughs> Chill with the politics. That wasn't my motive. I wasn't into the politics. My yeah. mind was focused on the swimming pool and the cars and the girls <laughs> I needed. That was my focus point And that was my only motive for coming here. But this guy is telling me about the protest and him being on the SRC and all this. And I'm like, yeah, we used to burn tires in Mitchell's plane and throw white people with rocks. But we passed that now. Let's focus on making money, you know, money guy, money. Anyway, so something crazy happens in the studio one night. We flip on this Abdullah Ibrahim record. The song's titled Little Boy. He's sitting with a notepad. I'm sitting with a notepad. And we start writing these lyrics. And we record this demo song called The Boxbook Blues. And I don't know where the lyrics came from, from my end, but it was all political. Mm. And I was like, I don't quite understand what just happened in that moment right there. And that, I would think, that was probably the seed planted right there for Prophets of the City and what it was to become. So I would give credit to Abdullah Ibrahim you know, for making this huge impact on me. And I didn't know who Abdullah Ibrahim was at the time, but there was something that happened, something I, up until this day I cannot articulate. It was just energy. It was just something unexplainable that happened that transformed me. So we wrote the song called The Boxburg Blues. We then ended up performing at, um, at an event 
that was organized by the community and they were protesting against gangsterism and drugs. And then the irony is our second event was on Green Market Square and this was <laughs> this was an in conscription campaign. And I'm like, oh okay, here we, here we here we performing and rapping about the government should stop sending young white boys, you know, to get military training so that they can stop coming into our communities and shooting us and killing us and all these things. And I was like, what? This is like weird stuff happening over here. <laughs> but with all these recordings taking place, um, we were like, no, how are we going to create this crew? What do we do? We were questioning ourselves and we were like, is it just the two of us? You the DJ and I'm the rapper scenario. And I told him, if, if that's the direction you want to go, let, let, let's do it. And, and I told him, look, you know, I could probably bring in homies from my from my breakdance crew, you know, to bring more of a hip-hop culture um, dynamic to the crew. Shane liked the idea. We introduced the idea to his dad and to Lanster. They were like, cool. And that's when Ramon entered the picture and Jasmo, the human beatbox, entered the picture. So that was Prophets of the City coming together, but we still didn't have a name, though. And as we were writing all these lyrics, things started to become more serious, you know, from, I would say, the the, the, the uprising and the unrest happening in our country. And listening to groups like Public Enemy and X-Clan and NWA and all these things, we're like, we don't know what, what we're going to call, who we're going to call ourselves. And then I was like, Shaheen, what do you think of Prophets of the City? And we abbreviated and we just call it POC. And it was like, but why Prophets of the City? We're not Prophets. And we're like, no, no, we're not Prophets though. But it's a name that will give thanks and give respect and show mm. gratitude, you know, towards all of those that have come before us and those that are with us right now and those that are still coming in the future. So from a philosophical standpoint, that kind of made sense to us. And that was the birth of Prophets of the City right there. That is an incredible story. Like I knew it would be, like I knew it would be. But I'm glad that you singled out Shaheen because it's some he's somebody that you've mentioned over the years, you know, as one of the foremost battle MCs of the time. Uh, but clearly also uh, a very staunch social activist. Tell me about your relationship a little bit. Would it, would it be safe to assume that, you know, when you started working with him and making making music with him, this is where your conscious path began? Yeah, um, working with Shaheen, that's definitely where my conscious path began. Absolutely. I've got to give him credit for that, though. So we were two total opposites. Shaheen comes from a music family. When I say music, I mean orthodox music family. His dad was a jazz musician. Oh, wow. He was always touring with his dad and all these musicians would come to their home and he was always exposed to music in that sense. So his dad, dad is a member of the legendary jazz funk outfit Pacific Express. So most people will know um, Zane Adams, may his soul rest in peace. He released mm -hmm. it as a solo mm -hmm. artist. But that is just Shaheen's background. So while we were sitting and producing music, I just came from this rough, rugged, untrained, tone-deaf perspective, <laughs> just wanted to scratch and do crazy things with the music. 
and Shaheen always wanted to keep things organized. But um, we would always find a common ground where we would um, compromise to a certain degree. And I think I was extremely rebellious and headstrong in that sense. And that's why when you listen to a lot of the music, though, you could go, okay, that's the voice of reason. That is order. And on the other side, that's chaos. So you kind of get a sense who the chaos or where the chaos is coming from. <laughs> so working, working on our world, his dad was appointed the producer because we didn't know how to program the beats. We didn't know how to sample. We were still learning how to do, you know, to do all these things. Um, one of the first songs that we started working on was a song called Stop the Violence. And that's a song that's on our world. And that's the first time that traditional Cape Guma music was fused with hip-hop music and culture. We had this idea that if we release music, we got to do things differently from the Americans. The Americans sampled a lot of funk, jazz, and, you know, all these different genres that they had on that side of the world. And we were like, okay, we're still going to be hip-hop, but we're going to focus on the local sound. So we didn't know how to sample, and this is where his dad came in to, to play, you know, all the different parts, the phrases, the riffs, the melodies, and all these things. So Stop the Violence was one of the first songs that we worked on. And on this day, this beat is playing, and the sequencer, the Roland MC50 crashes. So the original rhythm and the tempo for Stop the Violence, I think it was a 125 or 127 BPM um, drum track, which went... That's kind of like a typical Cape Guma rhythm. So if you listen to Dala Flat, that was the sequence of crashing, and that beat is the Stop the Violence beat. So that up-tempo drum track then became slowed down to and then Shaheen wanted to put the sequencer off and call his dad to fix it up and I told him, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. Let that beat play. Let it play. Let it play. And I was like, I'm feeling a vibe coming here. I'm feeling, I'm feeling something coming in. I started rhyming and I was like, take me bro, take And I was like, Shaheen, we need to do this Afrikaans track over here. Think about it. Stop the violence. This beat is a vibe. There's nothing on earth that sounds like this. Leave it. Mm. This is going to be the dopest beat ever. And he was like, yeah, actually it makes sense. And that is how we started writing Dala Flat. So Dala Flat came off the sequence of crashing for Stop the Violence. I follow journalist Atia Khan on Instagram, and she shared a pic the other day taken by Rashid Lombard of POC and Nelson Mandela on the election campaign in Elsie's River, I think back in 94. Yeah, it would be 94. And Madiba looks so amped. Like he's the only one <laughs> smiling in the pic, and then everyone's like <laughs> pulling signs, and you guys have got like really serious faces. Oh, yeah. And I know that you, you POC... Be, you had to be serious. To be hardcore, yeah. you had to be serious. There was no smiling. <laughs> 
there was like nothing back then there was nothing to smile about because we were oppressed by devils so we had to show them we were hardcore that was like fine <laughs> back then <laughs> see the pic is so funny i don't know if you've seen it or if you remember it but madiba looks like he's been photoshopped in because because he, he looks so <laughs> out of place and he's like smiling like, he looks so so broadly but but i know that you know you guys eventually ended up playing in his inauguration i mean that doesn't yeah. get any bigger than that but then you temporarily lost that gig as well what what actually happened there yeah that that was quite crazy though you know but it didn't surprise me when i sat back and started to reflect on what actually happened so with madiba coming out of um prison we were then on our voter education tour we toured the whole mm-hmm. country we had music produced specifically for the show that um teaches people how to vote and also explaining why they should vote. So on the store we had like a mock voting booth and all these things and we would line up the community that came to the shows. You know, we would take him through the motions and all of this. And during that time we get this opportunity to record in Baputswana at Bob Studios. This was like I think it was um full on digital 24 track SSL with the best um multi track recorders and it's got all the bells and whistles and these are the things that at that time any and every single musician would want to go to Bob Studios if it's not Bob anywhere in the world to record in a studio like that but it was cultural boycotts many bands from abroad would actually fly in under the radar and record at Bob Studios sure. because of the politics of the day. Anyway, cut a long story short, we end up in Bob Studios and now we're busy working on our third album, The Age of Truth. So with um uh Dala Flat and Owl being released, that happened. The second album, things became more intense in the country. Then we had our first um a video censored and partly banned and then we had a song called um On Stem and on our second album boom style by the time that we got to the third album we know south africa was in total chaos south africa was a mess 30 people dead more than 1000 have now been killed in political violence since the date was set for the country's first democratic elections in april next year itn's africa correspondent jeremy thompson reports it's the most violent township in the world's most violent country In Tokosa everyone's on a war footing. Police armored trucks patrol streets of empty gutted houses, daubed with the slogans of the ANC and their arch rivals in Qatar. The country was burning, people were being assassinated, Madiba have come out of prison. The National Party is trying to hold on to the last bit of power especially out in the Western Cape and having a colored so-called colored hip hop band from Cape Town the Western Cape telling the world that they are pro black and that they are black that didn't sit well with him we ended up in a huge pickle anyway we in pop studios recording the album the age of truth then on the news while we sitting in the studio Rasani is assassinated we wrote about that immediately so the album was extremely political the album was um i would say very open blatant, uh, blatant and explicit in terms of how we felt about the situation 
and the music was raw. It was energetic. To a certain point, there was chaos and there was all these things that kind of reflected how we felt about what was going on in the country at the time. So we record this um, this one song. I think it was a song called Blood, Bullets and Pigs or something. And Shaheen says something. I think he said, fuck Mongopi, even if we record here in Bob Studios. So one of the studio engineers heard that line. This guy freaked out. He sure. dragged us into the office swearing, losing his mind. He was a white engineer. Awesome guy. Mm-hmm. Really, really awesome guy. He's like, are you guys effing stupid? You know what could effing happen in here? If the word got out that you guys are saying things like this, we can all be assassinated. You sure. Bukutu Swana. Bukutu, Bukutu Swana was a puppet state, remember? So mm, probably, mm-hmm. um, um, I think it was Mangopi or something. He was the so-called president of this puppet state. So, um, I mean... Him feeling that way, I think it was fair and rightfully so. But we, on the other end, we were political activists, rebels, and we <laughs> felt the oppression. And we were on the front lines. And now you got these two worlds colliding in a very um, hostile space. Yeah. Because the studios were guarded by Mongopi soldiers as well. Oh, my. So if anything had leaked, <laughs> I don't know, you could have probably had prophets of the city with the engineer in prison or prophets of the city being assassinated or bodies burnt or dumped somewhere in the country. That is just how it went at the time, you know, with assassinations and all these things. Anyway, we managed to smuggle out the um, the masters of that album. Word got out of this political album that's coming. And about a week or two later, we were scheduled to perform at um, Nelson Mandela's inauguration. The minute the word got out, that's it. You guys are not getting onto the stage. You're not performing. That was the feedback we got. Then Lance, the manager, he put up the biggest fight. And he was fighting tooth and nail, tooth and nail, tooth and nail for us to get um, you know, onto that stage with Madiba's inauguration. We end up at the union buildings. They're like, okay, cool, you guys can perform, but you're not allowed to come up here with your decks and actually perform your music. So they thought they're going to throw us a curveball and uh, make us do a U-turn and say, okay, cool, fine. But they didn't realize that we actually had a guy that can make music with his mouth. And that's how we ended up doing our performance at the union buildings with Jasmo beatboxing. And the show went on (laughs) at the union buildings. So, yeah, that was POC performing at Madiba's inauguration. And the irony is we ended up performing at Tabo Mbeki's inauguration. A few years down the line. <laughs> but this time, did you have your backtrack? Yes, we did. At Tabu, <laughs> at Tabu's inauguration. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, we've almost been talking for an hour and we're just on POC. Like, we haven't even started talking about, like, you know, when you guys toured America and then, you know, you were essentially wow. banned in South Africa for a point and then you went to the UK to record through a UK label. I mean, I, I could I could list, we could just do like a side podcast, you and I, where we just talk about <laughs> your entire career and, and, 
you know, and everything that you've experienced and you've learned. But I want to ask you very quickly about the new hip hop crew, well, Brassa Funny Cup, that you started when you returned home from the UK. Because what I find very interesting is you essentially had two crews running in parallel, right, on on different sides of the world. But what was the main difference to begin with in the lyrical content and message between POC and Brassa? I would say, in essence, the message was the same. It was just um, performed and it was expressed differently. We were very strategic with Brasa Funny Cup. We didn't want to come across as another POC. So Brasa mm. Funny Cup was practically born under a table in the UK. And uh, I slept under a table on the hard floor um, in London. The group practically squatted at somebody's house or flat in London. And one night I was sitting with my, in fact, laying with my notepad under this table that I slept on. And I was writing this lyrics to the song called Ford's Nissan's Toys and Beatles because I love cars as well. I'm a bit of a petrol head as well. And I thought to myself, when we get home, I need to approach Mr. Fat, present this idea to him and see if he'll be up, you know, for performing this group called Prasa Funny Cup. And the reason why I wanted to do Brasa Funny Cup, at the time, POC, we only had one or two songs that would be recorded in another language, you know, whether it's Afrikaans or Afrikaans. And then with Ishmael and Junior joining POC, we then started having um, Zulu and Sutu dialect coming into the music as well and the languages. And I thought I needed to do something more with my second home language and dialect we ended up in Cape Town from the UK, called up Mr. Fat, rapped the lyrics to him, told him about the, uh, the idea. He was part of a crew called Jam B at the time. And he was like, my bro, as fuss, let's do this. We're doing this. And I was like, okay, now who else can we bring into the crew? And he's like, nah, try this brother by the name of Hammer. He's a choir rapper. I'm like, ah, yeah, I remember Hammer. Hammer's a cool bra, you know. Called up Hammer. Hammer was in. And I'm like, okay, I'm a rapper and I'm the producer for this band. We need a DJ. Then we called up DJ E20. His name was Enver Eyes back in the day. <laughs> okay, Enver's <laughs> up, up, up for the whole vibe. So this was Brasafani Cup. And we're like, look, we're going to be speaking about our reality. We will be dropping political and social commentary in the music, but we don't want it to be as... Um, prevalent and as obvious as POC as uh, yeah as POC, uh, POC did because we tried to create this um the separation as well although Brasafani Cup had all the elements that POC did you know we had b-boys we had DJs we had um MCs but now in this instance Brasafani Cup was like full on you know Cape Flats um dialect and Afrikaans that was I would say some of the key differences and the music wasn't as gritty and raw and as experimental as Prophet of the City's music mm. was. Mm. You know, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to 2002, I think, when you landed the gig as a resident DJ on the Fat Joe show. Would you say that this is a fair assessment to say that it's the start, that was the start of your solo career? Planning the, the gig on the Fat Joe show, I think that was the 
turning point for me as DJ Rini D. That exposed me to a much broader and diverse audience. That's what Fat Joe did for me. Prior mm-hmm. to the Fat Joe, I think I was established in the industry, but I was more active in scenes, if you want to call it that, and in clubs. So it was... Um, um, yeah, the scenes that I was in, it was very much um, specialized to a certain degree. But getting onto Fat Joe and with Fat Joe giving me the freedom just to be. And he was like, do you go wild? You know, when it's your time to shine, go mad. And I was like, Joe, I need three decks. Nah, you want four decks. I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do four decks, two mixes. And I think that really turned things around for me in a big way. And I'm Oh, I think I'll forever be grateful for that as well. And it took me into places and it exposed me to so much that I never thought, you know, I would ever be be, be, be seen or be performing in, in, you know, in terms of clubs and festivals. And it was just diverse audiences across the country, whether you were black, white, so-called colored, Indian, whatever the case may be. I just ended up everywhere. And I think that kind of blew the brand DJ Ready D. I think that kind of just opened up the doors and blew my profile through the roof. Yeah, I remember you also had a dope show on SABC called the Mzanzi Rides that was, you know, basically like a, a car customization show. You said you were a gearhead and you are definitely <laughs> a gearhead. I remember my dad used to watch that show and he was like, man, I like wow. this <laughs> Wow, awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. no, so, awesome. so rad. But I mean, you, you really have like your solo career has been, it's, it's been full of a whole bunch of different avenues. You know, you had, uh, obviously you had the Fat Joe show, you had Mzanzi Rides, and then, you you know, your first solo album, to then eventually getting your your own show on, on Good Hope FM, uh, which also, it, you know, is another huge milestone. Talk to me about how being on radio opened you up again to a totally different audience. Yeah, so um, with the TV shows, um... When, when I did Fat Joe's show and that um, show ran its course, I then started doing all these tours and at the same time um, I released an indie album slash mixtape um, that was not for the faint-hearted. So that was my first solo release. And we, we at that time, we could only run limited numbers because everything was done independently. And shortly, I would say around 2000. And seven, we started touring the country with Red Bull. So Red Bull wanted to take their brand into a different community and into a different market. So a lot of what we did with POC and BVK, from a concept perspective, we brought into that Red Bull street style tour. And through the tour, that is how I ended up with Mzanzi Rides. So to cut the long story short, though, while I was doing Mzanzi Rides, I got another offer to do another TV show called Deck Tales with Ready D, which ran for one season. So I had two TV shows running at the same time. Then all of that ran its course. 
I received a, a call from Good Hope FM's station manager at the time. He was like, dear, I want to make you an offer. I want to bring you on to Good Hope FM. I need somebody that can actually talk to Cape Town City, somebody that can talk to the community. It sounded attractive, but I was uncertain. And I had a long conversation with my wife, asking her what she thinks about this. Do she think I should do this? And I knew the money is not going to be the same because I was touring so much. Mm. I was on the plane, traveling all over the country and the world probably like, she was almost every week or every other week. And we were like, okay, think about the future. You know, if this works out, think about the future and how it could somehow consolidate what you do and look on the bright side. You'll be able to spend more time with the family and see your kids grow. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Let's do this. I ended up on Guru FM. For the first year, it was the worst experience of my life. Was a really? nightmare. Yeah. The first night, I wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> the second night, the nightmare became more intense. And it was just crazy. People didn't accept me. And I was blown away. And I was like, holy Lord, look what's going on over here. I received a lot of hate mail. A lot of people what? swearing at me, telling what? me that I'm bringing this low-class colored language and accent to radio because remember i'm the first radio presenter that ended up on a mainstream radio platform uh... not trained not getting vocal training to sound like a radio presenter so were people not but amped on you because of your accent of the accent yes that is ridiculous That's that that didn't that didn't sit well and just after a year i sat with the station manager and i was like natano i'm unhappy here man you can see what's happening look at what's coming through my inbox look at what people's telling me on social media you know the way people swearing at me spoke to him spoke to my wife and he was like d hang in there i promise you things are going to change just just hang in there i didn't quite understand it and I think when I entered my second to third year, that's when his words made sense because there was a transition taking place. That listener then migrated, was switched off the radios, and a new listener started to come. And that was the listener that really appreciated the fact that there's finally somebody on radio mm. that is now sounding like a community that have always been sidelined in the mainstream. So you now started getting all this feedback and I'm going to call it for lack of a better term, all this love from so many people. And then I started bringing the Afrikaans hip hop music um, to my radio show. We started off with the cypher sessions. The show became very popular and this is practically how this new audience started to grow. I did that, the, the, the night show, the evening show for close to 11 years. And last year, our station manager again, he decided, D, I now want to throw you into a prime time slot, 12 to 3 p.m. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I'm getting all that flashbacks of all the hate for the game. <laughs> oh, my Lord, I don't think I'm ready. 
for this rough ride again. And we decided to give it a shot and to see, you know, where this thing was going to go. And thank the Lord, um, Good Up FM was in a very, very dark place as far as our numbers were. Mm-hmm. And within four months, we surpassed all our expectations and the numbers grew more than double. I'm not saying it's me, though. It's you. But I think <laughs> I contributed to that. And now when you listen to my show, you kind of get a sense, you know, of, of Cape Town and who else lives in the country as well and who else mm-hmm. contributed to the birth and the bowl of this country, you know, on, on, on so many levels. So that's kind of where I'm at, just, just, just grateful and bolding, you know, on, on, on all these things and just happy to have a platform where I can still engage so many people and just celebrate who we are and all the information from a historic, from a social, from a political standpoint, we can kind of bring that through the show, create this thread. Hopefully it will help us all to heal. It will help us all to move on. And my hopes are to be in that space where we can move forward as society, move forward as a city, you know, start acknowledging and at least having some sort of respect one another, you know, from, from, from that perspective. I know it can sound a bit um, idealistic, but um, that's just my hope. Yeah. You have just gained a new listener to your show. I don't listen to radio. I stopped listening to radio a few years ago, but I will listen to your show from now on because wow. that is wow, the... You. That is the vibe and that is the energy that I need in my life right now. And I'm so immensely wow. happy for you and the station. And, you know, they say that behind every great man is a great woman, right? Cliché, perhaps, but also That's true. Truth. It's the truth. <laughs> true when it comes to you, especially. And I want to take a second to shout out your lovely wife and man- manager, Malika Daniels. She is a consummate professional and she's an absolute delight to deal with and the two of you you guys present such a united front and i can only imagine that it must be challenging you know to work with your spouse but also great to work with her (laughs) because she's divine no no absolutely um she is my foundation she says yay or nay and whatever she says i obey i don't question it nothing I think my blessing is that we both grew up within hip-hop culture. We both come out of the same community. So we, we, we understand the journey. We understand um, we, 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 we understand what needs to be done. And we also understand what needs to be done to get to a point where we need to be as well. Because we both experience the beauty and the challenges of what our environment and society had to dish out. And she understands me as well you know, how my head works, what I'm thinking, and sometimes she can actually answer my question or even say something before it even comes out of my mouth and she knows exactly how, (laughs) you know, how I'll react or what I'm trying to get at as well. And she's given me um, a lot of leeway just to be who I am, you know, to spend hours and hours of practicing and traveling, unpacking my ideas. And sometimes I'm like, what's going on over here? You actually... Um, so game and supportive and you're part of sometimes I think it's it's madness you know where we became drifting partners she drifts cars with me as well and does 
crazy things with me as well. So I think we, yeah, we, we our souls are somehow united, and that's why, you know, she's the she's the 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 force that keeps me going. Please tell Malika I'm very happy that she said yay to this interview and not yay nay to this interview because <laughs> <laughs> I would have been we'll very do. sad we'll if do. she'd said nay. <laughs> uh, but Dee, thank you once again. It's been an absolute honor to chat to you and I wish you all the best for the coming year and I will I'll catch you on your radio show. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much and thanks um, for the opportunity and um, yeah, all of the best. I'm sharper than Gillette and I'm sorry but she's rich She has that defect, turn a Y to a X So it's R.I.P. Mark Freck White gym to the death is the slogan Horse like a Trojan All of a sudden Owens broken and started throwing Bashing and gate crashing so we had to shut her down That's outside of town I'm not very proud but this is our men So I still defend her If she wanna wear a short dress then let her No matter the gender LGBTQ We love you too Make the pot rule a soul Like the bustle from the cop Did you remember how we partied? I was loving what nice Gunners was acting snacks Now they wanna stop me Offer to put it on me I'm sorry but you probably someone's mommy So I'll just say Yeah, this is amazing You got case style Skirt Your lay fees We make time Put the baby Drop it straight down You got me crazy
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. A huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store for always having our backs technically. Remember to follow Text Talks on all socials and subscribe and rate on whatever platforms you stream your podcasts on. Head on over to texttalks.com for all our previous episodes. And remember, that's text with a double X. From me, your host, Tex, producers Jonathan Ings and Matthew Lewitz, and research and associate producer Al Clapper. Catch you on the flip side.